Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Cape Talk. What's up, Lester? 072-567-1567. 28 minutes to 10 o'clock time for the Naked Scientist. Get your science, natural history questions coming in on 021-446-0567. Also taking your suggestions for great nominative determinism. Before we get to Chris, let's play, let's hear this one. Alistair, good morning, all the listeners. Yeah, I think the one that really takes the cake is the funeral parlor. Human and pit. <laughs> yeah, always good to laugh. Friday, laughter. We need to laugh more often. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Have an awesome day and a phenomenal weekend. Take care, Eddie. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for that, Eddie. Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Good morning, sir. How are you? Good morning. Yeah, I'm in very good shape. How are you? Very good. We, we started the show uh, by speaking about aptronyms, uh, nominative determinism. Uh, we spoke to an ophthalmologist in uh, Johannesburg, up in Gauteng, whose um, name is Dr. Kansi. <laughs> I've worked with so many doctors with, with names that do chime with what they end up doing. My favourite was definitely Dr. Foote, who was an orthopaedic surgeon worked on ankles. Uh, so well, one does really have to wonder. I had somebody who worked on The Naked Scientist when we first started who uh, changed her name when she got married and she wanted to change her name to get married because the person she was marrying had the surname Scales and she was a marine biologist. And so we ended up with Dr. Scales, the marine biologist, which was perfect as well. <laughs> but let's get into the questions. Adele's calling in uh, from Parklings. Good morning, Adele. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Very good. Hmm. Dr. Chris Smith is listening. What's your question? Um, I have a friend who, after showering every morning, then switches off the hot water and has a cold shower for a few minutes. He does this winter and summer. He says he never gets a cold or flu. Is he just lucky or is there some truth in it? Probably so mad he has no friends whatsoever that would come near him to infect him with anything. The, the reality here is this is a myth. Not that he doesn't catch coughs and colds. That's down to how your immune system works and how exposed you are to people who have something to infect you with. Going out with wet hair, going out with uh, you know too few clothes on and getting cold. Yes, you'll get cold, but you won't catch a cold. To become ill, you have to encounter an infectious disease. So hot water and cold water have got nothing to do with that. But what that might do is demonstrate a strong constitution. Someone who can do that is disciplined enough to do that, is probably disciplined enough to keep themselves healthy and to, to behave well in other ways. And that's probably a reflection on why they don't catch things, not so much as the cause of not catching things. It's an old wives' tale. Going out with wet hair will give you pneumonia. doesn't work like that. 
Thanks so much for that, Adele. In fact, in the next uh, few weeks, Chris, um, you know, we do this thing on 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 the show on a Friday called Lester Tester, and uh, we've approached a sports recovery um, company to ask, could we do an ice bath? So uh, in the coming weeks, we're planning to facilitate that I go there and we broadcast from there, and I'm going to get in, into an ice bath. And I've seen some challenges on social media. I hope media. you've got the bleep what? machine ready, because we sent... <laughs> A lady who we, we did our Christmas program on the Naked Scientist a few years ago, and we thought that we would send her ice swimming because there's a bunch of people who do this in London every every day, and they will break the ice to get into the water and go for a dip. And we sent her down there, and most of her coverage consisted of bleeping noises because it was so cold that she just it was oh beep 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 every 10 seconds so uh, yeah take take your bleeper with you because you will utter uh, a few unrepeatables you'll have a seven second delay oh seven two five six seven one five six seven get your questions in to dr chris smith the naked scientist let's have a listen hi good morning doc hope all is well on your side my question is i have uh, von willebrand's disease uh, obviously affecting my blood um, how is that different to full-blown haemophilia? I've always been interested to know. Thanks very much. Okay, von Willebrand's disease, like haemophilia, is a disorder of blood clotting. It's also heritable. And von Willebrand's disease is caused by the absence from the blood of a chemical called von Willebrand's factor, VWF. This is a different factor from the factor 8 that causes one form of haemophilia, factor 8 deficiency, or factor 9, which is another form of haemophilia, a bit rarer, called Christmas disease, after Stephen Christmas, the boy in whom it was first described. These are all disorders of blood clotting because the way blood clots, you don't just have one switch that gets thrown. Because this is potentially devastating for your body if blood clots at the wrong time in the wrong place that's what a heart attack it's what a stroke is it's very tightly controlled and there are different components that all have to fit together like a sequence of cogs in a gearbox in order to make a blood clot and if you have a factor missing it's like having one of those cogs missing in your gearbox so the gears don't turn properly Factor 8 and Factor 9 help to form big blood clots that stabilise a an existing clot in a blood vessel and strengthen it. Von Willebrand's factor is critical for starting a clot to form in the first place because what it does is acts as an interface between the clotting system and the outside world. It can recognise when blood is seeing something it shouldn't be seeing, like the innards of a blood vessel or a hole in a blood vessel. And what it does is to form a a matrix or an accumulation at the site where there is this particular problem and activate platelets, which are very small bits of cells which are made in the bone marrow and they float round in the bloodstream and when a blood vessel is injured or torn and you expose the blood constituents to the outside world, not the normal environment of the inside of a blood vessel, von Willebrand's factor and other components recognise that and recruit the platelets, turn them on and the platelets then change shape, become spiky and sticky and stick together to form a plug or block the hole and they then recruit the rest of the clotting factors to stabilise that initial platelet plug which is short-lived, relatively unstable and easily surmounted by blood pressure and so on. So people who have von Willebrand's disease, if they cut themselves 
they will continue to bleed. If you run a razor blade over your finger by accident, then you get a cut, and people with von Willebrand's disease will bleed for much longer than someone who doesn't have the condition. People with factor VIII deficiency, if they bash themselves and, and say, uh, bash their knee or something, they can get a bleed into their joint that will keep on bleeding for a, over a long period of time into the joint because they can't form a stable long-term blood clot that will slowly lead to remodelling and repair of the tissue. So they are two slightly different problems, one of which is more severe. Von Willebrand's disease is easier to handle, surmount and deal with than uh, factor VIII deficiency with haemophilia. Oliver in Durbanville, good morning. Good morning. Uh, my question is, if smoking is carcinogenic, is smoking your food also carcinogenic? Well, I did see, um, I, I, I did see someone um, r- r- sort of tongue-in-cheek wrote something once and they said, uh, I don't understand if smoking cures salmon, uh, why, why is it so bad for you? And um, the, the answer is that, yes, there are constituents in smoking which, when you smoke a cigarette, which cause cancer, and they do that because they directly damage the DNA in your cells. But when you smoke food, some of those same constituents will be on the food. The difference is the dosage, the amount of exposure, the volume of those chemicals, the site they're being applied to is very, very different when you smoke a cigarette compared to when you eat smoked food. So really, it comes down to dosage. If you eat too much of this stuff, there is an association with getting cancer. And instead of getting lung cancer, you get bowel cancer. But smoking causes all kinds of cancers everywhere in the body. I don't think there's a cancer that isn't in some way indirectly linked or directly linked to smoking. Um, But smoked food will increase your risk a bit in the same way as if you lived off a barbecue all the time. It does increase your risk a bit because the same chemicals, some of them, are going to be there and they can damage your DNA. But it's the amount that really matters. And anything that causes something to happen follows what we call a dose-dependent relationship. In other words, the more of the thing that does the damage that there is, the greater the risk and rate at which the thing it causes occurs. And so therefore, if you smoke a lot, you'll see a higher rate and progression of uh, diseases like cancer than if you smoke less. And if you give up smoking, you reduce your risk. And similarly, if you eat a lot of smoked food, your risk is going to be higher than if you eat much less smoked food. Oliver, do you bry a lot? No, I'm going to bry even less now. <laughs> Thanks so much. I, I, that's that's uh, a bit bad news for, for us meat-loving, brying South Africans. Does it have anything to do with the char or the or the carbon in those charred bits in in meat when we when we bry, um, Simon? Chris, sorry, not Simon, Chris. Yes, when we raise food to a very high temperature, you produce chemical reactions on the surfaces of the food which lead to the production of molecules which have the ability directly to damage or rearrange your DNA. And cancer is a genetic disease. It's caused by accrued damage to your DNA. And eventually you damage the DNA in parts of the DNA that repair the damage. And if you damage the things that can repair damage, then you get more damage and more damage more quickly. And so this is why you eventually succumb to cancer one person in every two will get cancer on earth it, it's very very common because eventually you get to a point where you're you you acquire or accrue changes in your dna that stop it repairing itself and, and these things in food that that are caused by high temperature will do that mm. uh amy is asking um why can some people clover leaf their tongue 
and others can't. Uh, is that manipulating your, your tongue into some sort of pattern? I'm trying to do it now and I can just yeah, flip my, my phone. I know my phone, what she my, means. My, my and, tongue um, in half. I can't do it. And my daughter can. My wife can. I just can't do it. And I look at them and I, I try and copy and I look an idiot. It's to do with your ability to push the muscles into a certain position. To an extent, this is going to be a reflection on the shape of your tongue, your ability to control your tongue, obviously. And perhaps there's some genetic aspect to this. Some people have a tongue of the right shape and a muscle configuration that's right to enable them to do that. I am not one of them. I can't roll roll my R's either. I just can't do that. Morning, Dr. Smith and Lester. I've come up with the words Agent Orange when I was researching uh, chronic lymphatic leukemia, which is what my grandfather passed away from. And he was an active um, officer in the British Army. I'd love it for Dr. Chris Smith to uh, explain what Active Orange is. Thanks. It's Karen Inglin Ken. Uh, Agent Orange was used by the US as a, a herbicide, so they would spray this from the air onto jungle and it would just demolish the jungle, kill it all off, and it would mean that things that were lurking hidden under the camouflage of overhanging vegetation would be disclosed. But it's not very nice stuff and there's a range of different chemicals in it that might be linked to a range of other problems in both the environment and us. It hangs around for absolutely ages, but I don't know how strong the links are to onward human disease or not. I'd have to go and look that up because it's not on my repertoire. But uh, certainly if you expose people to a lot of something, then there is a risk that some people are going to be more sensitive to it than others. And there could be various disease links, but I don't know. I'd have to go and check. Let's go to, is it Barris in Blauber? Good morning, Barris. Morning, Mr. Morning, Chris. I'm curious to know, often when you watch a movie, they use CGI. What is special about the green screen or the blue screen as opposed to any other color? Ah, well, what he, what what you what Barris is talking about is that when we film things, if we want to put the character who's being filmed into a computer-generated background. So say I wanted to create a computer game and I wanted my person running around in a medieval kingdom, then obviously I could go and create all the scenery of a medieval kingdom and medieval monsters and so on and uh, old kings and queens and it would be very, very expensive, cost me a fortune in actors. On the other hand, what I could do is film my character making a whole bunch of moves in front of a green screen and then I could lift them out of the virtual, sorry, out of the green screen environment just as the character and put them into a computer-generated medieval world. Very, very simple, and that's what you're referring to. The reason that you use green is just because it's much easier to see that compared with the other colours that a person would have on their face, skin, clothing, etc. So you can subtract the green away really easily because this is all done by a computer, which is seeing a picture and it's saying, wherever you see this colour, remove it and just cut out whatever's in front of it. And the weather forecasters that you watch on the telly in front of the giant weather map, they're doing exactly the same thing. They're actually standing in front of, in some cases it's blue, some cases it's green, a giant, very consistent, homogeneous coloured wall, and they are extracted from the picture by the processing in the TV computer system, 
and then they're planted in front of a new picture of the map. So they're not actually standing in front of a map at all. They're actually looking at a screen pointing at them that's got the map on it so that when they move their hand, they can see what they're doing and what they're showing. And then they know that they're not talking about totally the wrong picture, but they are not in front of a weather map. It's exactly the same. You could you can tell a computer not to use green. It could use red. It could use purple. You can choose any colour. But the reason for using something like green is that you can make it fairly different from what the person's wearing looks like etc to make that extraction much more accurate you can see when occasionally it goes wrong if someone's clothing or something about them has got some hue in it that's very similar to what's on the green screen bits of them disappear or their clothing disappears or the or there's a blurring at the margins of where they stop and the green screen starts and sometimes you can see this if you look carefully but when done well it should be invisible I worked for a, uh, a TV news channel once upon a time, and just before the weather person, the meteorologist, uh, was about to go, and they used a, a blue screen uh, in their weather department, and literally just before air, they had to to swap shirts. There with, you go. <laughs> uh, the, with, 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 with the camera operator in the room, uh, because they would have projected the weather through on, them on and they, oh my goodness yeah. you've gone transparent all of a sudden and everyone's very worried because there's this disembodied head and hands <laughs> morning doctor i've read that crocodiles don't age like we do uh the cells don't degenerate they also die from they oh they usually die from injury or illness is this common to any other animals i think this message from is from fano well crocodiles are reptiles and they are as such what we dub cold-blooded I mean, it's a slightly inappropriate term because they're not cold-blooded what they do is rely on the environment to keep them at the right temperature so they will bask in the sun to warm up and then they sink into the water to cool down but this means their metabolism tends to be quite a bit slower than ours does and as a result they tend to degenerate their dna and their cells and burn themselves out more slowly so they do tend to be pretty long-lived they don't age at the same rate biochemically that warmer blooded animals like a mouse for instance do because their metabolism is not producing the things that cause us to age which are various reactive chemicals which are unfortunately necessary byproducts of metabolism at anything like the same rate that a warm-blooded animal is but they are fearsome beasts and they're territorial and they fight and they fight over food they fight over territory they fight over the opposite sex and when they do so they cause all kinds of nasty injuries and maimings to each other and these eventually can become chronic wounds that, that even the crocodile immune system, which is very, very good, cannot suppress. And so they do eventually succumb often to, to those sorts of, of reasons to end their lives. But no, they're, they're fascinating species. And uh, I was talking to a guy the other day who works on Australian estuarine crocodiles. These are also Nile crocodiles, the so-called salties. And they have this bizarre adaptation in their heart where they have what looks like almost a geared valve in their heart so that as they submerge, they can bypass their lungs and blood goes out of the heart via a different route and goes round and round the body, bypassing the lungs. And in this way, they're able to use to the max the oxygen that's in their blood before they use a little bit more of the oxygen they've got stored in their lungs and it means they can remain submerged for enormous amounts of time with almost like an inbuilt aqualung uh, as in you know hours underwater without taking a breath and this is again a reflection on the fact they have much lower metabolic rates than a warmer blooded animal which wouldn't be able to get away with that but the amazing physiology of their heart it was just extraordinary to see how they do this 
Eugene's calling in. Good morning, Eugene. Ah, good morning. Good morning, uh, Doc. Um, I um, I'm on medication for GERD. You know this uh, uh, reflux, reflux problem. Uh, it, it causes a, a major sort of uh, a discomfort with heartburn. But then there's another one called um, Paleori Helix or Helix Paleori. I'm not sure which which way around. Now, can you just tell me what is the difference between these two melodies? Um, I'm I'm not sure what you're referring to, but it might be you're talking about Helicobacter pylori, which is a bacterial yes, infection. One, yeah. And uh, this was discovered by a friend of mine who got the Nobel Prize for it, Barry Marshall, who is in Western Australia. He now lives in Perth, and that's where he, he made the discovery because about 30 or 40 years ago, he noticed that patients who were cropping up in his gastroenterology clinics with stomach ulcers and in some cases duodenal ulcers or stomach cancers often had these funny spiral-looking bacteria in their biopsies he took from their stomachs. And together with a pathology colleague, Rob Warren, they realised that there always seemed to be an association between these spiral bacteria and people having this sort of disease. And so Barry Marshall wrote this up and sent this to a conference and he's got the letter framed on his desk in Perth where it says that uh, the conference didn't think this was a very interesting discovery so they didn't want him to give a talk about it, thanks very much anyway. And he's framed it and kept it on his desk because this is the discovery that won him the Nobel Prize uh, a number of years later. But these bacteria are the cause of stomach ulcers and of certain cancers and they can be removed with a treatment of antibiotics. And so we diagnose people when they come with dyspepsia, which is indigestion-type and sore tummy-type symptoms, or ulcers, or other kind of symptoms of things aren't quite right in the upper part of my abdomen. And we will test people for Helicobacter pylori, which is very common. Lots of people carry it. We've carried it since the days when you know we've lived in communities together. And if we eradicate Helicobacter pylori from somebody, it doesn't mean they won't get it back again, but it does reduce the risk of getting these various problems. And and, and in that way, it's a, a very easy to, to treat and intervene and prevent condition. So the first thing you do when you see somebody with these sorts of conditions is you give them an H. pylori test and then a course of antibiotics if they're positive. And this gets rid of the microbe and hopefully they don't get it back and then their disease risk goes away. But those are only a proportion of the problems that are associated with reflux. Acid reflux is where the sphincter, which connects your food pipe or esophagus or gullet to your stomach, isn't working as well as it could. And so you get splashback of stomach acid up the gullet and it irritates the tissue there and causes inflammation, soreness, and in some cases it can cause the tissue to begin to change in a way that could become cancerous. That's called Barrett's esophagus, and so we keep an eye on people who might be in that position just in case. But this is treated in a number of ways, simple ways with drugs that can suppress stomach acid. There are also other interventions like making sure you're not overweight because being overweight can encourage this to happen more. And in some cases, if you've got what's called a hiatus hernia, where the junction between the food pipe and the stomach has, has slid into the wrong position, it's possible to tighten things up surgically in that area to reduce the risk of this happening. So we start with the simple stuff and build up from there. Excuse me, Chris. It really happens, but on air sometimes I, I the, the need to take a, a sneeze. 
<laughs> so excuse me. Bless you. Uh, let's go to uh, a uh, a final voice note from Ray in Manenberg. Johannes. Hi, Alistair. Can you also ask uh, what about um, the fire lighters that people use? I mean, that's highly chemicals that one puts to uh, um, to, to light the fire um, for brides and stuff like that. Surely that goes on to the meat and could be uh, harmful. Good question. Chris? It is a very good question and accurate. Yes, you mustn't cook over a fire lighter. So use the fire lighter to light the fire, get the, get the bry going, but then once the charcoal has completely whited over, so it's really hot, there's no smoke coming off until you put the food on, obviously, and in that way you won't, you won't have anything other than pure charcoal burning. Those fire lighters work by using an absorbent material which is soaked in chemicals a bit similar to diesel. It's sort of kerosene. They're fairly sort of longish chain hydrocarbons which don't evaporate very well, which is why your fire lighters don't go off in the box. They don't evaporate the oil very fast because they're big chains of hydrocarbons. And yet when you light them, they break apart fairly easily to react. So they burn and they burn with an orange flame because of the soot they give off. But once they're gone and combusted, then the material is taken away from the barbecue. So, as I say, wait till it stops smoking and is well lit and very hot and you'll have driven off all of the chemicals that were in the fire lighters and then you can cook safely. But don't cook over a fire lighter because it will taste pretty horrible because there will be residues of the kerosene and the diesel stuff which is in the fire lighters getting on your food and it doesn't taste very nice. Dr. Chris Smith, thank you so much. Looking forward to next week. I hope you have a good weekend. Until then, stay well. Thanks, Lester. Thanks, uh, Johannes. See you soon. Bye-bye.